You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. What keeps us from encountering Jesus? What keeps us from meeting him? What keeps us from spending time with him? What keeps us from knowing him? What keeps us from encountering Jesus? That's the question that we want to look at in today's passage as we continue on with this book of Mark. So what passage are we going to be looking at? And that's a really good question because the answer may not be exactly what you um, would have expected. For those of you who were here last Sunday or like uh, myself watched it online because we were overseas, uh, Daryl spoke on the first part of Mark chapter 15 where Jesus was brought before Pilate and was accused by the chief priests. And you might remember that Daryl got Micah up here to sort of stand in for, for Jesus and have all these paper sort of accusations stuck all over him. And Daryl said that he chose Micah for that reason because of his long hair, but uh, I personally think that it was for other reasons. Personally, I think it was just because it gave him so much more vertical space, basically, <laughs> to stick on all these things. But more importantly, the theme was the greatest act of mankind, because instead of a guilty murderer being sent to death, it was an innocent Jesus who willingly took that place. And in fact, those were the events directly leading up to the crucifixion. So if that's the case, it's only natural what we're going to be looking at today, right? Last week, looking at the events leading up to the crucifixion, and today, completely skipping over it and going to chapter 16. Because here at Sun Life, we like to keep you on your toes, you know, expect the unexpected. Because indeed, the passage we've been allocated to look at today is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Last week, looking at what happened before the crucifixion, and uh, this time skipping to the events straight after it. So, what's the logic of that? Well, it's not that we as a church don't think that the events in between are important. Um, I guess this is a spoiler alert for anyone not familiar. But those events in between are probably the most critical or some of the most important parts of Christianity. The real reason is that we actually covered that um, area before, um, earlier this year at the time of Easter. And... In fact, um, we also kind of covered today's passage well during that period too. However, the focus is going to be a bit different uh, this time. Because when Pastor Ben went through this passage at uh, Easter, uh, the theme was on Jesus' resurrection, uh, which makes sense because at least in my Bible passage, it's the title of the passage, the resurrection. But rather than covering the same ground as last time, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. Because the passage that we're looking at today is also unique in the book of Mark for another reason. Well, it's because the book of Mark is the story of Jesus. And you might say, well, aren't all the Gospels the story of Jesus? And they are. But Mark is a really direct, straight-to-the-point kind of guy. He, um, it's the whole reason why the Gospel of Mark is the uh, shortest of all the four Gospels and why we had any chance of completing a whole Gospel in the course of just um, one year. Because of that, Mark really talks about the life of Jesus and nothing else. To be specific, in almost every single passage in Mark, Jesus is there. It's Jesus being baptized, it's Jesus being tempted, it's Jesus calling the disciples, Jesus preaching, performing miracles, healing, forgiving, telling parables, Jesus casting out demons, Jesus walking on water, Jesus feeding the thousands, his transfiguration, entering Jerusalem, cleansing the temple, praying in the garden, Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being crucified, and uh, Jesus, um, well, in, in this situation now. You get the point. It's all about Jesus. In almost every passage, Jesus is present. But not every passage, because in our passage today, Jesus is not there. And if you haven't read it yet, we'll do that together in a moment, and you'll see why. 
But that's what makes this passage really uh, relatively unique in the book of Mark, because excluding this one, Mark only ever speaks about what happens to three other people when Jesus is not around. Which three other people, we'll we'll get to that later. But uh, as for this passage, let's have a look. So Mark chapter 16 and verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought aromatic spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. Then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for your word. And God, we just pray that you would give us new insights this morning, that you would teach us new things. God, we pray most of all, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us this morning and show us what you would like us to hear, what we should receive from you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the verses we read tell the story of the resurrection, and that's what Pastor Ben spoke about on Easter Sunday, which is the day specifically celebrating that, uh, that event. Except, as I mentioned before, that's not going to be our focus today, which might sound a little bit crazy, and, and maybe it is. But like the crucifixion, it's not that the resurrection isn't important, it clearly is. In fact, if you weren't there, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Ben's message, where he talked about that as Christians, we have to believe in the um, resurrection, why it's even more important than the crucifixion, and why if we don't believe in the resurrection, then really nothing else in terms of Christianity makes sense. And I completely agree with that. However, that's not our focus for this morning. In fact, what I want to look at is the fact that Jesus wasn't there. Yes, he's mentioned in this passage, his name comes up, but he wasn't physically present. Which makes it interesting also that I've titled this message, um, Encountering Jesus When He Actually Isn't Around. It's a bit like movies like Saving Private Ryan, where Private Ryan is the title character, but he only really turns up sort of in just the final quarter. Except in this case, Jesus is completely absent. And as we said just before, this is a really rare thing in the book of Mark, and that got me thinking, there must be a reason for this. There's a reason why Mark decided to give this account of these people alone, because alternatively, he could have just described what actually happened at the resurrection. I mean, he could have documented, and we don't really know, heaven opening, the angels sort of descending, and you know, clouds of smoke and flashes of light, that sort of thing. He could have described what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and then just skipped ahead to when Jesus appeared in his resurrected body to different people. In other words, he could have just followed the story of Jesus. But no, Mark instead decided to describe this episode of these three women. And what I wanted to know is what can we learn from this? What can we um, find out uh, about uh, from the actions of these three people? And we have to be a little bit careful when we do these kind of examinations. And you've probably heard this before, that there's descriptive and prescriptive um, scripture. And we can get in trouble if we get them mixed up. Prescriptive scripture is where God is uh, telling us directly uh, what to do. We think about uh, the commandments, about God's prophecies, and uh, Paul's letters to us. However, descriptive scripture is what's happened. It's about the history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. It's the Gospels, uh, like the one we're currently in, and the book of Acts. 
But the reason we have to be careful with descriptive passages is that the actions of the people are not always a model of what we should do, and often they're not. But they are recorded there for a purpose, and so we can and we should learn from them. Sometimes learning what's good, and sometimes learning what's bad. And that's particularly the case here, because I think the three women in this passage, they do three things that are good, and three things as well that they could have done a bit better. And that's actually the overall structure for the message today. Part one, looking at the three things the women did well, and then part two, looking at the three bad things. Good and bad in terms of what? Well, as we said at the beginning, in terms of encountering Jesus. What things were helpful, what wasn't? And with that, we'll delve into it a bit more, starting off first with what were the three good things that the women did. So let's look again at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. The first thing about the three women that I think we should learn from is their devotion. They were people devoted to Jesus. And although we skipped over, if we go back to Mark chapter 15, we see how devoted they were. Starting off with verse 37, some background. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood in front of him saw how he died, he said, truly this man was God's son. So this is obviously very important background. It's Christ's death on the cross. But it's actually the next bit that I want to focus on. Verse 40. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they had followed him and given him support. So what's interesting is that Mark is very specific about who he mentions uh, witnessed um, Jesus' death on the cross. There was a Roman centurion and then three women, the same three women who were also at his tomb. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Salome. In fact, some accounts refer to them as the three Marys, which does depend on the source because, you know, here it's Mary, Mary, and a third one whose name is quite... We won't, we won't go there. But the point is that these women had a rare position. They were witnesses at the cross. They weren't the only witnesses, but they were the ones that Mark specifically named, which is surprising because if you thought he named any people, it would be Jesus' disciples, previously 12, now 11. But as far as we know from the other Gospels, the only disciple who was there was John. And very likely, many of them were specifically not there, particularly Peter, because, um, as you may remember, he was so scared that he denied Jesus three times. But these three women, they were devoted. They followed Jesus throughout. And later on in chapter 15, it says that two, at least two of these women, also saw Joseph of Arimathea, placed Jesus' body into the tomb. The women stuck around. They were devoted. And we see that same devotion in our verse now, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, they bought aromatic spices so they might go and anoint him. And now in full disclosure, there's some controversy regarding their actions here relating to traditional Jewish burial customs. What we know for sure is that both then and now, neither embalming of the body or cremation was performed. Usually the body was just washed and then wrapped, and then it was buried ASAP, because the general principle behind uh, sort of Jewish burial uh, was that you let the body decay naturally and so that it could return to the earth. So the standard explanation for why the women brought the spices was to counter that smell of decay, which makes sense from a practical point of view. However, the controversies are, you know, why would they reopen the tomb to do this, and whether the body had already been prepared fully or incompletely by Joseph and Nicodemus, and whether spices or oils were really a thing in, at all in Jewish uh, culture. Regardless, though, Mark's intention in recording this action of the women was to really show their devotion to Jesus. 
And it's even more apparent when you focus on a particular word that Mark uses, because he doesn't say that the women prepared the body uh, with spices or were planning to cover Jesus' body with spices. No, he says that they were planning to anoint him with spices, which obviously has much more of a spiritual tone to it. It's an act of worship. There was this reverence they had for Jesus even after his death. And perhaps this will bring to your mind um, something that we heard about two weeks ago at the Next Gen service. When we looked at Mark chapter 14, there was the, the, the woman there who anointed uh, Jesus with oil from the alabaster jar. And Jesus said at the time, she has done a good service for me. And later on, she anointed my body beforehand for burial, for telling what was to come. With these women also hoping to do a good service for Jesus by also anointing his body. So to me, this act of the women really highlights their devotion to Christ, both in his life and in death, before the cross, at the cross, and now after the cross. So for this first point, what's our take-home message? Well, I think it's really simple. If we want to encounter Jesus ourselves, showing the same kind of devotion the women had would be a really good start. But how can we do this? Well, as we've seen in this service already, it's through things like in worship. It's in things like giving our offering to God. But of course, as we really want to stress here at Sun Life, it's much, much more than that. It's much more than what we do for you know, an hour and a half, an hour 45 on a Sunday morning. It's a life of devotion. It's more than just a once a week check-in. If we really want to encounter Jesus, we need to be truly devoted to him. So that's the first of the three things the women did well. So if devotion was the first good thing that the women showed, what was the second? I think it's discipline. What does it say in verse 2? And very early on the first day of the week at sunrise, they went to the tomb. It actually quite closely and strongly links with point one about devotion. But the bit I want to focus on more here, uh, which I believe Mark also stresses, is that the women take it uh, the very first opportunity to see Jesus. As it said in verse 1, you know, there was a Sabbath where no one was allowed to venture around to do any work, let alone go visit a tomb. But as soon as they had the opportunity, the women bought the spices. And then in our current verse, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week at sunrise. So Mark is really saying three times in three different ways they were there as early as possible. In fact, to get there at sunrise, they had to leave in the dark uh, before the sun actually uh, rose. And the point I want to make here is that all of this took discipline. It took planning. It took effort. It took sacrificing their comfort. Because it's one thing to have devotion, but it's another thing to be disciplined about it, which might sound a bit odd. I mean, can you be de have devotion but not be disciplined? Well, sort of. Because I think all of us know what it's like where the mind is willing but the body is weak, or the spirit is willing but the mind and the body are weak. We can have our good intentions, but then things don't actually eventuate. And I'll give you a very practical example of this, because we try to be practical here at Sun Life. And the, the example I'm going to give is a very specific example, because it's something that I know that Pastor Bin will like, because it's one that he always mentions. The example of discipline that I want to give is coming to church on time. And if you did get to church here late uh, today, don't worry, I'm not particularly pointing you out. It's okay. We all have our different circumstances. You know, there are definitely some things that are unavoidable or unpredictable. And we would definitely say we would rather have you here late than not at all. In fact, I know some people who come off night shifts and rather going home and you know, going to bed like a, a lot of people would do, they instead come to church as soon as they can get here. So for them, coming late is actually a sign of devotion and discipline. So this is not a point of judgment. It's certainly not one for us to judge others. We shouldn't be looking at people coming in late and saying, you know, that's not good. 
We should be looking at them and thinking, it's wonderful that you're here. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, it's wonderful that you're here. And then say to them, it'd be even more wonderful if you were here before 10. No, no, we won't do that, all right? But what I'm saying is that for all of us individually, and including myself and my family, there are times when we were late where there is no great reason. I mean, maybe we didn't plan well enough, maybe we slept in, and keeping in mind our service is at 10 a.m. It's not like 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. You can actually sleep in and still get to service on time. Yet, it's still possible, and I'm speaking from experience, to get here after 10. So, look, a very practical application for this point on discipline here. And as pastors like to say, you know, is that okay? Can we agree on this? Which is really code for, you know, please don't throw anything at me. But of course, discipline is not just about getting to church on time. It may be other things as well, right? Other things that we've decided to do, but in the end don't happen. So, you know, for you, that might be, uh, you know, to do with your quiet time. It might be joining a service team. It might be uh, attending a small group and so on. But in this passage, in terms of discipline, the three women certainly had it. They got it while it was still dark at the very first opportunity, just so they could encounter Jesus. They were not just devoted, they also converted into action. They were disciplined. And that brings us to point three of our first half, which is in verse three. They had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Now, this is a bit of an interesting one because it can be read in a couple of different ways. The somewhat sort of critical, pessimistic, negative take on this would be, well, this really just shows bad planning. Because, I mean, you've gone to the trouble to go and buy spices, you've also woken up super early to get there, but you haven't actually planned how you're going to actually get into the tomb. I mean, seriously, what kind of plan is that? And to be honest, that's totally what I thought when I first read the passage. Seriously, have they not planned this at all? Am I pessimistic? Well, in my defense, occupationally, I'm trained to sort of see the negative side of things or focus on the negative side of things. As a radiologist, if I looked at a scan and I said to someone, you know, hey, 95% of your scan looks okay, they'd be like, well, uh, how about the other 5%? And I'd be like, no, look, don't sweat it. 95%, it's all good, right? They'd be like, no, seriously, what about that other 5%? Obviously, that doesn't really cut it. The point of my job is to look for the negatives, to look for the bad things. Hopefully there will be none, and we're always hoping that will be the case, but we have to actually look first. So I see this scenario, and sure, there's good things about it. You know, they were devoted, disciplined, they got up early. I'll get back to that. But how could they not know how they were going to get into the tomb? It's a bit like one of those um, heist movies like um, Ocean's Eleven or Mission Impossible where there's some sort of elaborate, intricate, um, multi-step plan to complete some sort of task. You can't really say, well, you know, 95% of the plan you know, um, you know, will work. 95% isn't enough. It doesn't work like that. It's not Ocean's 10 out of 11. It's not Mission Theoretically Partially Possible. No, it has to be 11 out of 11, which is what I tell my kids. And all the... Per- And all the perfectionist OCD people and tiger parents all said, amen. (laughs) However, however, after some prayer and fasting, or maybe not fasting, I looked at that verse again, verse 3. They had been asking each other, who will roll the stone away for us? And I had another thought about it, the fact that it actually showed faith. They stepped out in faith. But, But I want to be super careful here because I don't want to equate Faith, faith to a lack of planning. It's not like I have faith, therefore I don't need to plan at all. 
And some of us might admit, you know, some of those super faith kind of people where you ask them about anything and they just reply, you know, oh, it's in God's will. You know, you can even ask them simple something like, you know, you know where are we going to go for lunch? And they'll say, oh, God will sort something out. I mean, there's got to be a balance, right? I mean, you don't have to plan, you know, what you're going to eat there. You don't have to pre-plan where you're going to sit, although Sundays with kids you do. Uh, but you do need to decide where you're going to go first. Planning is not a bad thing. But the anti-planners might, you know, quote Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It sounds pretty convincing. Or James 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a, uh, a profit. You don't, do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. But is God against planning? I don't think so, because in that passage in James, it continues, you ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this and that. It's not planning that the Bible is against. It's the arrogance against God that God is opposed to. And consider Jeremiah 29, um, 11 as well, famous verse. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. And if you think about it more broadly, God is definitely a planning God. He planned what happened to Jesus well in advance. In fact, he planned it before the beginning of creation. Even before time existed, God planned. So we, I think we can safely say that God likes planning. Faith is not a substitute for planning or godly decision-making. All right? So that's my sort of OCD person's rant um, finished. But getting back to it, the three women, they had been asking each other who will roll away the stone. And so allowing for the caveats I've just mentioned, this can be considered a sign of their faith. They still went ahead. They still bought the spices. They still woke up early because of their devotion to Christ. They said to themselves, even if we don't know how exactly it would happen, we want to get it done. And perhaps they had some possible options. You know, maybe there would be a gardener there. Maybe there will be some of Jesus' other disciples or other followers who might be able to help them out. We don't really know, but what we do know is they made a start. They didn't just say, you know, we don't know how it will work out. We're just going to stay at home like, you know, woe is me. It's all too hard. They went out in faith. And so what does that mean for us? Well, the first two things we learned from the women were about, uh, about encountering Jesus were devotion and discipline. Then the third one here is that we also need to have faith. Sometimes when, and, some, and I guess particularly when, uh, not everything falls into place, sometimes we need to just step out. And perhaps there are some of us here today who may be able to relate to this. Maybe you're in a situation where you don't know how exactly things will pan out. Maybe you don't know where the 50000 dollars will come from. Perhaps it's something that you've been thinking about for a long time, trying to plan for ages. Then maybe the message for you today is that God wants you to take that first step. Prepare and plan as much as you can. Do your due diligence. But once you've done that, then trust in God. So that's the first half of of our message and passage today. In terms of encountering Jesus, what did the three women do well? Well, they had devotion, they had discipline, and they had faith. And those are all good things. So if they had those good things, why didn't they actually encounter Jesus in this passage? Well, we're going to look at that in our second half. What could they have done better? And it's here that I really want to stress that I'm going to highlight some of the, I guess, bad things that the women did um, in, in this next section. But I'm not trying to unfairly pick on them. Because to give you some context, we remember that there were three other people that Mark um, describes, uh, where he describes what they did without Jesus being there. And it turns out those three other people were, in fact, three men. Number one, John the Baptist. 
Mark begins his gospel describing John's ministry before Jesus was even on the scene. And then in chapter 6, he describes how John the Baptist dies. The second person that's mentioned is Judas Iscariot. In chapter 14, it describes how he planned to betray Jesus. And the number three, also in Mark 14, was Peter, where Peter, scared for his life, denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So the actions of the three other people who are described when Jesus aren't there, to say the least, are really quite varied. We have John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. We have Judas Iscariot betraying, planning to betray Jesus. And we have Peter, the so-called rock of the church, denying Jesus. So whilst in this next half I'm going to criticise the actions of the three women, I'm not really picking on them unfairly. Because if you think about it, there's two groups of three people that are being compared And one of those groups includes Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. It's pretty safe to say that you want to be in the other group instead. So now that that's sorted, what could have the three women done better? What prevented them from encountering Jesus? We'll read on a bit more, verses 4 to 6. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. And then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man, a man, uh, 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 sorry, dressed in a white robe and an angel. Uh, it doesn't say it there, but uh, that's what's implied, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. In terms of encountering Jesus or what prevented the women from encountering Jesus here, the first thing that's mentioned is that they were kind of looking in the wrong place. I mean, and that might sound a little bit harsh, and that's why I want to stress before, I'm not trying to pick on them, but it would seem logical that if you're trying to find Jesus, the first thing you should do is actually go to where he is. But we have to kind of understand the circumstances they were in. For us familiar with the passage, you know, we may think, well, obviously Jesus wasn't there. He was risen. He was gone. Don't they know the Easter story? Well, the thing is, they didn't because they were still in the Easter story. This was all new to them. It was new to everyone. And to be honest, in any normal uh, circumstance, if you had seen someone die, you had seen them being buried in a tomb, it was probably more than reasonable to expect that if you wanted to find that person again, you would go to the tomb, you know, where they were buried. Except this, of course, was not a normal circumstance. This was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So yes, the women were looking for Jesus in completely the wrong place, but it was kind of understandable. But having said that, I still think that there's a point to be learned here, because my feeling is that the reason why they were misguided about where Jesus was was because they were also misguided about who Jesus was. And they certainly weren't alone in this. Pretty much no one really understood who Jesus was then. In fact, if we look back at Mark chapter 8, we see what people were thinking. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And the disciples reply, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Jesus then asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ in Greek, or you are the Messiah in um, Hebrew, which of course was the correct answer. So Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, but that still didn't actually mean he really knew who Jesus was. What do you mean? I mean, you said that Peter gave the right answer. Well, he did, but did Peter understand what the Christ or the Messiah really was? And that's the key issue, because not not everyone was on the same page about what it meant. Inherently, the Christ, and just a reminder that, you know, it's a title, it's not Jesus' surname, uh, the Christ and the Messiah meant an anointed one or the anointed one. A bit of a callback to our previous um, 
discussion about anointing. But what did people think that actually meant? Well, as we saw before, some people thought that Christ would be a new prophet to give them new guidance from God, that, or some other people thought he'd be a new priest to represent them before God, whilst others thought he'd be a new king. And for many, like a regular king, like King David or King Solomon, to come in glory, to come in might and power, and specifically military or perhaps political power at least, and free them from the rule of the Romans. And it's why later the Romans mocked Jesus and his disciples saying, you know, here is your king of the Jews. But now with Jesus being dead, there was obviously a big spanner in the works. Now he was just a body in a tomb. Not many, in fact, maybe no one expected him to be a Messiah who would save them by dying and then being resurrected, which is why the three women went to the tomb. They were misguided about where Jesus was because they were misguided about who Jesus was. They looked in the wrong place. So what can we learn from this bit? Well, it's not really that we should learn to you know, not look for Jesus in the, in the, in the uh, wrong physical place. It's not like I'm saying that you, know, you tried to come to Sun Life today, took a wrong turn, and ended up at some like, you know, Hindu temple or you know, um, Islamic um, mosque or something like that. What I mean is that sometimes we end up looking for the wrong Jesus, the wrong Christ. We look for our own preconception of who he is rather than who he really is. And this is actually best demonstrated at this particular time of the year, pre-Christmas. Because yes, it's a wonderful time to remember the birth of Jesus Christ, but we can't just leave it there. Because for many people in the world, this may be their predominant view of Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger, who came to the world to bring love and joy and hope and peace. And all those things are true. But they're not the only things. We also need to remember the whole truth, that it isn't just Jesus the baby. It's not just Jesus your best friend, Jesus your comforter, Jesus your help. Neither was he just Jesus the healer, Jesus the teacher, the prophet, Jesus the uh, priest, Jesus the king. He was all of those things together and more. And particularly in light of the passage we're looking at today, he was Jesus our Christ. Jesus, our Messiah, the one who died for our sins, paid the price for us on that cross, took our penalty of death upon himself, but didn't stay in the grave, instead rising again so that we may have new life. We need to have a proper and complete sense of who Jesus was and is. And if you think about it, that's exactly what this whole series on the book of Mark has been about. Not just seeing parts of Jesus' life, not just picking and choosing the bits that we want to focus on, but seeing it all, seeing who he was across his whole life and ministry. <clears throat> if we want to encounter Jesus, we, need to, we will find where he is by first of all knowing who he is. And so that's our first point for this second section. Now let's go on to point two in the next verse, verse seven. So just one moment. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So what else kept the three women from encountering Jesus in this episode? The angel says here, you will see him there. That is in Galilee, not in the tomb. We covered that already. But it's the next bit that I want to point out where the angel says, just as he told you. We said before that the women were misguided about Jesus, and here we see that they shouldn't have been because Jesus had already previously told them about everything. So either they hadn't listened properly, or I guess they failed to comprehend what he had said. 
And again, I'm not just you know, picking on these three women because they certainly weren't the only ones. The angel also said, tell us disciples, even Peter, because the disciples and Peter also didn't really understand either. And should the disciples have known? Well, yes, definitely. In fact, just in the book of Mark alone, it records that Jesus told them at least three separate times. In Mark um, chapters 8, 9, and 10. In Mark 8, it says in verse 31, um, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke openly about this. So it seems pretty clear, right? What was the disciples' response to this? So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But after turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. So that obviously didn't turn out very well for Peter at all. Well, how about in chapter 9, Jesus' second prediction? Jesus again says that the Son of Man will be killed, and after three days he will rise. But how did they respond this time? Verse 32, but they did not understand the statement and were afraid to ask him. Well, how about the third time in chapter 10? We won't read it, but we'll see what happens straight after in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, and they said to him, Permit one of us to sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? In other words, they still didn't understand the gravity of what Jesus was about to go through. In fact, all three times the disciples either didn't really hear properly or didn't comprehend properly what was going on. For that matter, even after his death, and this might come up next week, there was the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Even they didn't understand what was meant to happen to Jesus. And these disciples had a very specific advantage because they literally had the resurrected Jesus walking beside them, telling them about what was going to happen. So what do we take from this? Well, of course, it's that if we want to encounter Jesus, we need to specifically heed his words. We need to listen, and not just to listen, but truly comprehend, praying that God will help us understand, and particularly help us to understand when what he is saying is against our own expectations or against our own desires, when things don't necessarily fit into our view of the world. Just as for the disciples, you know, the thought of their master, their rabbi, their leader dying on a cross was not something that they desired, so much so that Peter rebuked Jesus for that thought. Because often we also have our own ideas about how life should go, our own desires, our own worldly ambitions, and giving up um, on them can be a challenge. But if we truly want to encounter Jesus, then these are the things we need to do. We need to look for him in the right place, look for the true Christ, and also truly understand his words and guidance for us. So how about our third and last point for this section? What else could the three women have done better in terms of encountering Jesus? So let's look at our final verse, verse 8. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What was the final issue that we can learn from these three women? What else prevented them from encountering Jesus? Well, this one's pretty clear. It was fear. They were afraid. It says terror and bewilderment had seized them. So much so that they didn't go, at least in this passage, uh, to do what the angel had asked them to do, to go and tell the disciples. It says they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And this is actually how Mark ends off this passage. But why were they afraid? Well, there was probably more than one reason. One thing we know is that they were initially alarmed by the appearance of the angel. 
you know, the angel did the irregular thing that angels tend to do, which is just kind of appear out of nowhere and scare the living daylights out of the person and then say, you know, don't be scared, don't be alarmed. And if you think about that, it's not a very helpful thing to say at all because people only say don't be scared when there is something actually to be scared about. No one says like, you know, don't be scared, there's like a cute puppy behind you. They, They say don't be scared, there's a lion behind you or a giant spider hovering over your head. And in that case, it's probably appropriate to actually say, be scared, like, you know, let the fight or flight response take in and, you know, get on out of there. So certainly the women were alarmed by the angel, though at least in this case he appeared to them in human form. I think we've talked about this before, that perhaps the angels had learned their lesson that appearing to people in the form of, you know, a four-headed monster or like wheels with eyes all around it, you know, that generally wasn't a very comforting way to appear to God's people. But... Is that alarm the reason they fled from the tomb with terror and bewilderment? Um, I mean, is that the reason why they fled with, um, from the tomb with terror and bewilderment and didn't say anything? Well, it could be partly, but it's likely there was also another practical reason as well. It could have been that they were afraid of what the authorities might do. The Romans and the Jewish leaders who had wanted Jesus to be crucified, knowing that he was missing from the grave, would not have been a good look for those in power. And the women may have been appropriately worried that they will start looking for people to blame, something that the disciples were very aware of. It was the reason why many of them fled when Jesus was arrested, because they were worried that they would be arrested too. It was the same reason why Jesus also denied Jesus, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. And even after Jesus' death in John 20, it tells us that the disciples met secretly in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So did the women have reasons to be afraid and run away? Definitely. Partly because of the angel, because of supernatural things, but partly because of their fear of the authorities. Natural things too. So what what can we take from this last point about fear? I mean, is it just do not be afraid, you know, be strong and courageous? I mean, they're all very generically good things, you know, to say. But is that all that we can recommend? Well, I don't want to answer that yet, because what I want to do is for us to take a bit of a One quick last step back and look at this whole scenario as a whole. We've seen that these three women did three things that were right. In coming to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices, they showed devotion, they showed discipline, and they showed faith. But as we said before, they still didn't encounter Jesus in this passage. Why not? Well, as we said, they were misguided about Jesus, where he was, because they didn't understand who he was. And the reason for this is they failed to comprehend what Jesus had said to them to prepare them for this moment. And now we also see that they succumb to fear of the supernatural, but also the natural. And that seems like a lot of reasons, but if you think about it, all of these things were due to one fact and one fact alone. They came to a tomb that was empty. Because when the women saw the empty tomb, their whole world changed because they would have already known the tomb would have been empty if they had truly known who Jesus was. They would have known that the tomb would be empty if they had comprehended Jesus' words to them. And if they really knew that the tomb was going to be empty, they wouldn't have been afraid. But instead, Mark ends off this passage with one emotion, the emotion of fear. In fact, some people also believe that this is how um, he ended off his original gospel as well that it ended off with this concept of fear. Mark doesn't resolve the situation for us in this passage. Instead, he puts us in the place of those women, what they did and didn't do when Jesus wasn't around. We see it through their eyes. 
they came to encounter Jesus. But what they thought they would encounter was a crucified body in a tomb. And what they didn't know was that that wasn't God's plan for them. And it's not God's plan for us either. It was not his plan for us just to see a story about a Jesus who was born in a manger, who lived on earth, was a good teacher, a healer, a prophet, but in the end was crucified and died and just buried in a tomb. Now, because if that was the only story we were meant to hear, then death and judgment for sin would still await us. And just like the women, we would and should be afraid. But no, God's plan was for, well, not for them to encounter just a crucified body in a tomb. God's plan was for them to encounter instead a resurrected, living Savior Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. The women came to say goodbye. They came to say farewell. They came to make peace with Jesus' death. But God's plan instead was that it was a hello. It was a new beginning. It was a victory over death. And that's why I think Mark tells the story of these three women. These three people who do what they do when Jesus isn't around. Some good, some bad. So that we can learn from their story. So that we can also encounter Jesus. With devotion, with discipline, with faith. But most importantly, knowing that that empty tomb means we can now encounter a Jesus who is no longer in the grave, but has risen for all of us. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you indeed for your word, Lord. We thank you for this example of these three women, Lord. May we be inspired by them, God. May we have that same devotion that they had for you, God. May we love you just as much as they did. May we want to follow you, Lord, in every step as much as we possibly can. And may we have the same faith that they did as well, Lord, that that we would step out as well when things are uncertain, when we don't have all the answers, when we don't know how things are going to work out ourselves. May we step out in faith and believe that you will provide that solution. And God, may we, most importantly, have a full understanding of who you are. Not just see what we want to see, not just believe the things that we want to believe, not just take and leave what's convenient for us, but I pray that we will be accepting of all who you are. Just like this whole year as we've been looking through your, this gospel of Mark, Mark's account of your story, the story of Jesus. May we take it in its entirety, see all facets of you, and truly understand this wonderful person that you've given us, that you've given us Jesus Christ, Jesus our Messiah. We pray, Lord, that we will be able to truly encounter you. May we truly know you. May we truly be able to spend time with you. May we truly be able to meet with you. We pray, God, that as we leave here today, Lord, that this would just be the beginning, Lord, of a more time that we can continue to encounter you in our life every day, every hour, every minute, God. God, just be with us throughout this week. We thank you so much. We pray these things in your name.